Welcome to Grow and Learn, everyone. This is Zorina. Today, I am welcoming Kevin Hennigan. He's a chief uh, learning officer um, at a data analytics company, and he's also chair of the advisory board of the Data Literacy Project. He's an author of multiple books, including Turn the Data into Wisdom. So today, we're going to be breaking down um, misinformation, misinterpretation, different types of biases. I am help, I'm welcoming with great pleasure, Kevin Hennigan. Hi, Kevin. Awesome. Thank you, Serena. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. So data, everybody's repulsed by data analytics. <laughs> um, yes, it's required for all kinds of work that we do, even for marketing, for everything. Everybody says we need data, but yet everybody dislikes somehow analyzing data and making database decisions. What do you think about that? What, what, yeah, why is that? I mean, it's true. And, and I think part of it is data gets a bad rap. I mean, it, it also is overwhelming because there's so much, but I, you know, I, when I talk in person to people and we, we mentioned data, you can see half the jaws just go like, oh, uh. not, not for me, but it's because people correlate that to numbers, math, statistics, analytics. And there is a portion of that, but data to me is the lowest level of like knowledge content. So it it, it doesn't have to be numbers. It could be um, surveys. You, you want to go on a vacation and you, what do you do? Usually maybe you go to an Airbnb, you look at reviews. That review is data. Let's say you want to buy a new car or a new, I'm a huge coffee fan. I want to buy a new coffee pot. I go on Amazon what do I do? I look at the reviews. Yes, I'll look at three stars, which is numbers, but I'll look at the, you know, the surveys, the feedbacks, that, that's all data. So it's everywhere. We Social media, everything's been digitized. There's so much data out there that I'm nervous. The people that say, no, I'm not a data person, time out, then it's not that you're going to get left behind, but the world is now running on that. And you, every decision you make today, take a step back and think about what you did this morning a lot of those decisions, whether you did them consciously or not, they involve some form of data um, or information or knowledge. And what's hard for us is because there's so much of it, the brain kind of plays tricks on us and it makes us think that the data we have is all of the data. And so here's a decision we're gonna make, um, like a quick analogy, you're walking down the street and you look up and there's a skyscraper and there's a big crane with like a piano. We don't pause and do the mathematical calculation of what's the percentage chance it's going to fall and hit me and die. And what's the wind trajectory? We usually just say, oh, shoot. And we go to the other side of the street like it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. But our brain is still using that decision with data. Um, today, everything we do, there's just so much of it. So the brain gets overwhelmed and it takes shortcuts. And I think that's why misinformation is a problem now is we see surveys, we see statements, we see numbers, and our brain thinks it's a complete puzzle, but it's missing pieces. And so we lead to drawing conclusions from that, which may or may not be accurate. We mm -hmm. need more information, basically. Um, it's something called a bias, a cognitive bias, is I might have an opinion, and then I see a piece of data, and I say, oh, there's the answer. I was right. Look at that. Um, but that might not be the full picture. It might just be a portion of it. I see. I mean, the... Um the mere method of collecting data may already contain a, a certain bias when it comes to questionnaires, the way you the question is asked, or um, 
even the platform onto which you present the data may already introduce bias or the person who, uh, yeah, as I said, collected the, or the agency that produces the data may also present it and skew it in a way. We all know it about statistics, statistics, and, you know, uh, adjusting data to your, to serve your purposes. And before we started recording, we briefly touched on the subject of uh, COVID and how uh, what, what role data played in the whole development of this scenario. And I would like to talk about, about this. And But while you were talking now, I also remembered that yesterday I had a conversation with an acquaintance of mine talking about yet another socially important topic, which is the uh, illegal immigration currently happening in Europe, in the US. And I said, um, while in the Syrian crisis, the migrants that that came to Europe, some of they were the majority were male again, but some of them came with their families, not all clearly. But now the migrants coming from Africa are majority male, and there is data on that, especially people coming from Lampedusa. There were big stories now, um, and they, they're majority male 90% or so. So, th this data, uh, and he says, Give he said. Uh, give me the data, show me the data. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, I don't have the data. This is what, you know, I've heard from secondhand and this is how we receive our information. Somebody uh, already went through their interpretation and presented it further. So this is how it worked with COVID, with, with everything. This is how we get our data. And very few people actually go onto the, the sources of the, the statistical bureaus and check Something. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. That is one of the challenges. So like taking a step back, you, you have the data, someone's done the analysis and then they come up with an insight and they share the insight. It It's useful, but to your point, it it might not be 100% accurate for a couple of reasons. It might not be an insight that really is relevant to the question you're trying to ask. Uh, maybe the group that came up with that insight unintentionally or intentionally didn't use proper techniques. And that's why, like when COVID came out, I, I felt like it was an eye-opener to the world. And with all these crises happening with environmental, climate change, social, economic, refugees, we don't learn to question the insights. We say, okay, well, this doctor, this scientist, this news anchor, this person shared this statement. It must be true. And there are situations where it's true, but it's not the whole truth. It, it's not the full story. And so like with COVID, it was a, it was new. We just learned about it. So we're learning on the fly. You need as, as us as humans, we need to be able to interpret the insight, but then also validate it and question it. And instead of just blindly believing it. And I think that's where to me, this topic is so important is it was, a, it was an eye opener for us because we saw stuff on the news and we didn't know how to question it. And some of the stuff was right. And some of the stuff in hindsight, we realized wasn't really accurate. Um, it was misleading and we didn't question it enough. And so those skills now should be applied to every, to your point, every data we see when someone says, yeah, 90% are male, it doesn't mean that we don't believe it. It doesn't mean we have to be rude, but we just have to use techniques to question it and make sure we trust it. And what does it mean to the question we're trying to answer? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the question also is um, what happens if, if the raw data, data you're given is um, misrepresented 
to begin Absolutely. with. Yeah. So that's why I love data, but also why it scares people is right. You could get that insight and someone might say, okay, 90%. But in that situation, what if they were only sampling one refugee camp out of five and that one had predominantly males and the other one was more mixed? So there's famous stories. You know, I, I believe it was one of the first autonomous self-driving cars when they programmed it, the data set they used were all uh, Caucasians. So when it would come across someone of color, it would not think they were a human. It would think they were something else. Or there's cases in finance where they train automation, whether you're going to get a loan or not, based off data. Now, if that data is only going from wealthy citizens, and then what it's going to do is maybe it's going to decline a loan for someone who is um, less wealth, less investments. And it's just going to snowball and perpetuate the discrepancies. So again, that's why I'm scared is all of this data and technology is great, but it could actually not help us. It could actually make the problem worse because to your point, it's not the insight. It's the data going into the insight could be biased itself. It could be flawed. Mm -hmm. You also do a lot of work related to AI and and this point that you just made that makes uh, put me in this direction now of AI. Because uh, now, yesterday, I think there was a story of a car, of an electric car that uh, locked automatically and the person inside couldn't unlock and passed away, unfortunately. So as uh, autonomous vehicles and everything smart becoming more prevalent now, um, how should we protect ourselves and make sure that it doesn't reach this whole situation doesn't reach a point where it's uncontrollable. Yeah, it's it's a great analogy because part of it is there's two different components. Part of it is we all have to have a certain risk profile. And what I mean by that is like we don't want to be people, at least I don't, that sits in my house forever and like never leaves because I'm scared of things. So for the longest time, lots of like I used to be scared of flying and I actually used hypnotism to get over it. Now I can fall asleep before we even take off. I sleep like a baby. And it was for me, I think it was more of a control thing, but they always would show someone would say, well, well, Kevin, you know, more people die in car crashes than planes. Uh, my my brain wasn't hearing that. It was just hearing, OK, well, you can have a fender bender in a car. You, fender benders in planes don't happen. Like usually when a plane, it's it's very disastrous. But the, the point was, it was, I was thinking of the worst case scenarios with, with the airplane crashes. I was trying to, um, it, it was um, in my head, the data wasn't matching up. It was, okay, I hear that understanding that, you know, more people dying car crashes, but now we go to AI and driving cars. I, I ended up getting on planes. Now with AI and cars, I have to have a risk profile. Some people are saying, okay, well, that might happen. But if if everyone drove those, you'd still have less accidents because you wouldn't have the people texting or who are not good drivers. So we as data citizens need to understand the pros and cons, use the data as best we can and come up with an educated action on what my risk profile is. So will I get in an automated car right now? After seeing stuff like that, emotionally, I want to say no. Um, but over time, I think if more people move to to autonomous cars maybe wouldn't have as many accidents where there are people that are just careless drivers like there's a there's a pro and a con and everyone's answer is going to be different 
because it's based off of your risk profile. I might not get on a plane before hypnosis because my risk profile was, oh, that scares me, even if the data was different. Whereas autonomous cars, there may be a lot of people that say, yep, let's do that. It's great. And other people might say it's not. Neither one of them are right or wrong. And that's the whole point with data is you can have polarizing discussions where both people can have a valid argument, but the data is the data. And, and my goal is to try to educate everyone on the data so they can make the right answer for them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Uh, although it's a different aspect of the question I, I had in mind, I was actually asking um, when when the programming of the AI, when, when the AI was model was being taught to execute certain tasks, and if the data we, that, it, that was used for the AI model to be taught, let's say regulations from the WHO or something similar to that, that may be flawed to begin with. So yes. if, if, the, if the AI model was taught with such flawed concepts, in, in the end, it will start controlling our lives with all of these smart components of our environment. Yes. And, and, and this, it will take it to the wrong direction. It, well, and that's the example I was going to give. This is the, the urban legend or the best example for that in, in why what we talk about the human element. So when GPS first came out, there was this urban legend that someone was driving down a road and the GPS told it to turn right. It turned right and they drove off a cliff. And in hindsight, they're like, well, the data told me someone had trained the GPS basically to say there was a road to the right. It was flawed. Um, the, the answer to that, in that case, it's easy. It's use your brain. It, it's don't be blindly driven by the data, but make an informed decision. So, okay, if I turn right, is there a road? No. What is there? Well, there's a cliff. What happens if I drive the cliff? Well, I probably crash the car and die. Let's not drive off the cliff. That's an easy answer when it's something like an autonomous car where you don't know it's going to lock up on you. It's a lot harder because it's a lot more abstract. In that case, the obvious answer is, well, I'm going to apply my common sense. I'm going to question the data. I'm going to question the algorithm. I don't think it really wants me to turn right there. It must be a mistake. That's the easy answer. The hard part is we see these all the time where we don't know it's going to happen before it happens. And that's why we still need to use like critical thinking and questioning framework. Um, it might not stop someone from getting locked in a car, unfortunately, um, but many situations you do see the output before you take the action, like, do I turn right or not? And in those cases, that's what I want everyone to say is, okay, computers aren't always right. AI is not always right. It said turn right, but no, I'm not going to turn right. And as a result, I'm going to make a better decision. Mm -hmm. So so how do you have a framework? through which you uh, question data that you can share? I do. I have a few of them, and, and they all range in different complexities because, you know, questioning what I'm going to have for lunch today is very different framework than, like, what is my business um, operating model, how I'm going to monetize my business, like a more strategic decision. The The key tenants are the same, though, and, and why I think it struggles, we struggle is a lot of it is around as humans, we think linearly. It's about thinking laterally, thinking outside the box, thinking systemically. It's about questioning. And I know I'm getting on a podium now, but I know when we're kids, I have four kids, they all say why. And it drives us crazy as parents, but it's because they're curious and because they want to understand things. 
as we get older and our brains fill up and our long-term memories, we don't, we're not naturally curious anymore because we believe everything that's happened to us. We already know the answers, whether we say we do or not, our brain says, Hey, I have the answer. This happened seven years ago. So we stop asking questions and then the culture actually makes it worse. So if I go to college and I question my teacher, they're usually going to say, Kevin, don't talk back to me. I'm the teacher. Just, just pay attention. Or we go to our first job and the manager says something that isn't quite right. And we try to politely challenge them. And they say, don't challenge me. I've been managing this for 40 years. I know better. We suppress curiosity. We suppress critical thinking. And we're at the same time asking everyone to use those more and more with AI and automation and data. There's a disconnect. There's a gap. Mm-hmm. And so the, the most simple framework is learn how to be critical thinkers again. Learn how to question Go back to as we were kids and ask why. Even if you think you know the answer, you might not really know the updated answer. So keep asking why. Um, All the way to more structured frameworks that have like 10 steps around getting diverse perspectives, coming up with two different alternative solutions and weighing the pros and the cons. Because when you do that, your brain won't focus on one and give you like a confirmation bias. You're always having things to compare with them. Um, so again, depending on the type of decision, you can go from very simple, but they all revolve around critical thinking and questioning. Yeah. Okay. This uh, helps me make the loop back to the the whole COVID story. Um, because what you were talking about is a part of your topics uh, that, that you normally discuss are implicit bias versus cognitive bias. And what you were talking about just now was partially implicit bias, stereotyping. We learn to put, we learn a certain thing and we stop questioning it, right? Like the teacher, what you just explained. Okay, so that's implicit bias. But then we have the cognitive bias. We have now the data, for example, that uh, the effect of uh, the COVID injections was not so benign, as a matter of fact, reported by the National Statistics Bureaus. It goes depending on the months, between 10 and 20% of excess debt uh, in most highly vaccinated countries in the world. The population where, in countries where um, the population was not vaccinated very much, have no change in their excess debt. So this is quite telling. At the same time, though, the the office the the statistical bureaus stopped reporting excess deaths per vaccination status so you cannot tell now we we just have the bulk of this information excess death is you know above the the average excess death but we don't know if these people are vaccinated or not we just know that the countries that that have the low vaccination rates don't have this excess death and this has been going on for more than a year now Okay, so when I speak to people that were very much pro-vaccine and they haven't updated their knowledge on this, they I am met with this cognitive bias. So, yes. so I, what is your stance on that? How how do they perceive the world? How to get around it? Is there a way to yep. break it, this cognitive bias? There is, and and the first step is is the hardest. It's acknowledging we have it as humans. I will do a workshop and train a hundred people, and on estimate, there's probably about twenty five or thirty of them that will not believe we have bias, and and those are the harder ones to overcome. So I always do different workshops. I share a personal story. So like 
implicit bias and cognitive bias related to like, I'll share a story that when I was younger, growing up the neighbor um, kid around my age would always shoot like little pellet guns around the neighbor and would always blow out our windows and it would drive my parents crazy. Um, and, and the neighbor had red hair. And I just noticed as I got older and like, I would see people in school and I saw them with red head. I'm like, oh, Joey's a troublemaker. Let's stay away from him. And it even got worse where there was a movie that came out like the next year called the problem child. And the kid had red hair and I didn't even notice anything. I didn't notice I was implicitly doing anything. And I have four kids. My third kid literally came out of the wound. Sometimes they're bald. Sometimes they have hair flaming red hair and like a whole bunch, like more than I have right now. And it was just the shock my brain needs to say, well, he's not an evil kid. He's not a bad kid. And then it was like, oh my God, I've been unknowingly stereotyping against someone's hair color. And then that put me on the passion to learn about how the implicit bias happens. But then it flips to cognitive bias because my brain believes this to be true. It, it says, okay, red equals trouble. So when I see a statement or I see something in the news that goes against that belief, I shut it down and I, my brain shuts it down before I even have a chance. It's unconscious. So I say, nope, not true. I need some big event like my son being born. So, so to your point, what are the strategies and the frameworks? It, you need something that triggers the brain to say, time out, there's a disconnect, there's an update. Um, and sometimes you can do that just by exposing yourself to new information and being open to the change. So like with COVID, when things came out, we didn't know a lot about it. So as the testing and as the disease matured, we learned more. If we're open-minded to learning those new things and unlearning the old things, we can get over the bias. The biggest thing that helps me to get over it is I ask for other opinions because I'm humble enough to know that I don't know everything in the world. Um, I, very, I know very, very little, but if I have an opinion and then I ask my wife, I ask my kids, I ask my boss, I ask my colleagues, I ask my neighbors, and they're all giving me different input and I'm open to that input, it's going to trigger my brain to say, well, Kevin, either you're smarter than all of them and you're the only one that gets it, or you're an idiot and you're wrong and it's all them. And, and so it, it works really well getting diverse. That's why I'm a big fan of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you need to have the right mindset, right? If you have a closed mindset, if you don't have a growth mindset, it's much harder to come over bias because these things stick with you forever. So I guess the biggest takeaway would be try to embrace a growth mindset, try to embrace that the world's evolving. So what was a true statement 10 years ago might not be a true statement today. And we need our brains to kind of sometimes recheck and rebalance. Mm -hmm. But especially when it comes to such a sensitive topic that has brought so much fear um, and and also suppressed fear in, in people. And now that it's temporarily out of sight, people don't want to bring back any potential danger related to this. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it is the mm -hmm. brain is mostly emotional. It's how we've kind of evolved as as humans is the, the, the emotion brain is still big. And so part of us, it's why we might know, like for me, I might know I, I might be a little bit overweight or not the healthiest, but I don't want to see a doctor, right? It's that emotional thing. It's not logical. It's not rational. Same thing with the COVID data. As we see something, we just, um, our emotions take a hold and we're like, nope, we, um, Funny enough, that's why when people say sleep on it, that's actually scientific. It's because they want you to get the emotions out of it. And the thought is, if you sleep on it, maybe the emotional part of the brain will will um, stop firing so strong. 
for me, it's not about sleeping on it. It's about getting different opinions, but there's different ways. Like I have people play devil's advocate with me. I have people give me diverse opinions, um, but sometimes it, it's just practicing mindfulness. So the emotional brain isn't, isn't as triggered. Mm -hmm. Yes. But uh, in, in the case of the whole uh, marketing of the, of the COVID vaccine, uh, I think that at that time, there was so much pressure and everybody was so brainwashed uh, to have the same opinion that even if you had asked a hundred people around you, you would have gotten the same answer. All the data was supporting it, all the media, all people. So it was really, you know, in some cases, there's just so much pressure on your, on your brain, on your everything, emotions. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they play to the emotions, right? Because COVID is, you know, people, you would see the word death everywhere. And that's an right. emotional topic for people. Um, and that, that the part about the vaccines and marketing is, it's interesting because the more we learn about the brain and, and the way it works, it can be used in a marketing way. So like the most common example is in, in the US when we buy a car, there's something called the sticker price. Now, there's a bias called the the um, anchoring bias, which means the first data point you see that's stuck in your brain and then everything else unconsciously you compare to that. So if someone says, OK, the car is 30,000 US dollars and then the sales rep, you know what? I'm feeling good today. I'm going to give it to you for twenty seven thousand. Our brains get happy because we're like, wow, that's less than 30, even if 30 was never a realistic number. And mm -hmm. so that happens with COVID. It happens with vaccines. It happens with marketing as they play to the emotions. They give you numbers that anchor you. And then they give you other numbers where it's like, oh, this is better. But going back to my initial thought, if, if we all are critical thinkers and we all question, then we can overcome that. But if we don't know to question it and we just blindly believe it, then we're going to fall victim to these biases and, and, you know, we're going to buy cars that are probably we're ended up paying a lot more money than we should have, or we're going to do things with vaccines, or we're going to make decisions on climate change or where to go on vacation that are, you know, not ideal, not rational. Mm -hmm. So is this the advice to deal with misinformation as well? How do you know if it's misinformation or not? Yeah. Um, well, the first one, you you know, is, is check the source, right? And, and that's, easier said than done, right? Because there are some reputable sources that there, there's two different types of misinformation. There's misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. And they both play at the fact that the brain has so much stuff coming at it, it's overloaded. Disinformation is done deliberately. Misinformation is done not intentionally. Mm -hmm. They both have the same outcome is, is you draw a less than ideal conclusion. So with like COVID, we dealt with tons of misinformation. There might have even been some disinformation, but the, the the reason the misinformation was there was it was a new disease. We didn't know enough. So at that point, it might have been a true story, but we were misinformed because it wasn't the full picture. So people might not have known in the beginning that you can be asymptomatic, but you can still pass it on to someone. So when you saw numbers, they weren't really telling you the full story because there was a whole demographic missing. So the whole way to overcome misinformation, disinformation is again, take a step back, trust the source or not trust the source, but then question it. So I will ask questions like, in what situation is this data misleading? I'll even pretend I'm on a debate team and I am forced to debate the opposite of what I believe because it forces me to do that. Sometimes now I will use AI. So I'll use chat GPT 
Um, there's something called the Socratic method where you're just basically questioning things. It's like how kids ask why, why, why. I will ask chat GPT to question my thoughts and it's not going to give me the answer, but it's going to ask me questions that cause me to pause and think and say, okay, well, maybe I did miss that component. Well, maybe that. So like when COVID came out, when it says COVID cases are exponentially increasing and all the charts go up, like that plays at your emotions, the chart going up, that equals deaths. Using this framework of critical thinking, I would look at it and say, okay, well, how do you define a case? Like, what is, what is that? Is that, what if someone isn't testing? What if they are testing? What if you're only testing people that show symptoms? Then obviously your positivity rate is going to go up. So it all comes back to learning a little bit about the information and then trying to question it. Um, it served me well. I think everyone, if you kind of think about something you see on the news that goes against what you believe, I'd ask you over the next week to pause and think to yourself, why does that go against what I believe? And in what situation could they be right and I be misinformed? Mm -hmm. And hopefully that leads people being the brain triggering saying, hey, that's the redheaded child that's now my son. That was my moment. Hopefully everyone will have their moments and realize that you know data can be very misleading, even if it's still accurate. Uh -huh. Okay. okay. Can you give me an example of how exactly, you, what kind of prompt would you give to chat GPT to make it help you with your decision making to test the validate the validity of your data process. Yeah. So let's say um let's say I am opening up a coffee joint or whatever and, and I have all these variables and I could go to chat GPT and I could say, okay, I've done my insight. Here are my insights. I I need to raise X amount of money for building this facility. I would like to put this facility, here's my demographics next to a high school or next to a, a working complex, close to a highway in a city with X amount of people. My thoughts is I am going to be profitable in 2.5 years. Here's my insights. And then I will say to ChatGPT, use the Socratic method and prompt me questions that might tease out where my, my information is misinformed. What and would it be the Socratic method? Uh, it's basically a technique where you just ask why uh -huh. and why and why. So, or, or what, how did you come across that? So I might say um, COVID vaccines are dangerous. Okay. Well, where did you get that information? Well, what did they say? What did the data specifically say? What data could be missing that would change your opinion of that? Mm -hmm. And you go all the way down iteratively and basically it's getting you to, it's, it's like, you know, they sometimes say there's like the halo on one side and there's the devil on the other and they're they're asking you different questions. It's like the person on my shoulder asking me questions in my head about is my opinion sound? It's not going to make a decision for me, but it's just mm -hmm. a way of questioning me. I'm the one that's actually answering the questions, but it, it's just someone sitting there asking me those questions, prompts over and over again to validate that I might not be missing something. So a big one I'll ask is like, what assumptions am I making in this insight? Um, and it might say, okay, well, you're missing, you might have another demographic. There might be another variable that's related to this. There might be more about the disease you don't know about. There might be other components. It's not going to give me the answer, but it's going to give me things to think about that I have to question. There's something that caught my attention on your profile here, and it is switching from linear to exponential thinking. 
is that related to what we talked about until now or is there are there other techniques i know that you're um apart from data analytics you incorporate psychology in your work it is i mean just think of it this way technology is evolving exponentially like the think about you know my my kids they don't know what like a remote control or a VHS, they don't know like a rotary phone, they don't know even newspapers. Like technology is exponentially growing, but our brains are not exponentially evolving at the same rate. Our brains are evolving linearly. So what that means is when we're given a problem in work or in life, and we have access to all of this technology, we're usually answering it in a linear way. Very simple, like cause and effect. We're not taking the next jump forward. And in order to truly innovate, so a good example would be, you know, hotels have existed for decades and decades and decades. And that's linear thinking is what are we going to add to a hotel? Let's add a pool. Well, let's add a business center. Let's add a daycare. Let's add a restaurant. It took someone to think exponentially to say, okay, in what situation can I have a hotel and not own a building? Airbnb. Um, we've had taxis for thousands of years. There used to be chariots and horses and cars and people thinking linear, asking questions. Okay, well, how can I maximize the, the routes for taxis so that they're working more? Maybe I'll put a TV in the back to increase customer satisfaction. Or I'll take credit cards now. It took someone thinking exponentially. Those are all linear. They're very mm -hmm. small improvements. It mm -hmm. took someone thinking, okay, well, how can I build a transportation company where I don't own any cars? Uber. They're thinking exponentially. And so my point is the technology is there for us to be exponentially, but we're not using it yet. So those companies like Airbnb and Uber, there's more out there waiting to be had. And there's more for us in business and in life to use. We just need to get our brains to stop thinking incrementally, linearly. We need to get it to think exponentially. And different techniques, it's easier said than done. But the, the point is, when we do that, it goes back to the emotions. Our brain's like, oh, that's crazy. That would never happen until it did. And that is an emotional response we have to get over. So the people who founded Airbnb and Uber, whoever they were, they did a really good job checking their emotions because they probably heard from a million people that would never work. You're crazy. That's insane. But yet they thought exponentially and got it to work. So I'm a huge fan of it, especially for the business world. It's just we don't teach thinking that way. It's not natural to us. We don't teach it in science. We don't teach it in MBA programs. And so it it, it doesn't come naturally for everyone. Mm -hmm. Actually, they do teach uh, open business models. In the I, I did an MBA where I actually learned open nice. business models, okay. teaching these things. Yeah. It depends. Perfect. It depends. Yeah. 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 So, so okay. <laughs> I have another question now related to what you were just uh, talking about the exponential thinking. And now that I understood what, what is behind it, uh, I linked it immediately to um, all kinds of emerging business models and what is in the end the plan of Carl Schwab. Schwab, uh, Schwab World yeah. yeah. World Economic uh, Forum. Yeah. And his statement, you will. Uh, own nothing and be happy and so all of the, all of these exponential models in order to disrupt a certain industry the the way is to move away from individuation so from individual ownership as well so the path is anyhow 
if we were to follow the, this path of exponential thinking, the, the path will take business anyhow to the model of Carl Schwab. Of you will Absolutely. own nothing. Yes. Which is, again, an emotional thing for people, right? Because we've been brought up, at least in, in the culture I'm in, where it is all about individual accomplishments and it's less about the family and the group. And sure, we, we like our groups, we like our teams, but I would say for the most part, outside of sports, we're not really team players in organizations. I think sports, maybe you see that a little bit more when they have the right chemistry, um, but it involves getting the right chemistry, which is interesting. When you look at the teams that in a sporting setting that do that, they're not the best of the best. They're usually complementary to each other. Yet in organizations, uh, again, I'm probably have some implicit bias here, but we we tend to hire the same exact people over and over and over again, and it doesn't lead diversity. And then in that case, they're not going to have teamwork and they're not going to get to the level that, that Schwab mentions, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do we know if this projection of his is a has a good outcome? It's a very complicated data combination. Is this going to be a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> how do we know? Well, that's the million dollar question. I don't think we know. I think that to me, it comes down to if we use it right, then it's good, but it can also be used for bad. Like, you know, you even go back to just recently watched Oppenheimer, right? Like you can do things for good purposes, for bad purposes, you can do things that you think are for good purposes that end up being for bad purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, we can't even get there unless we all have critical thinking, we all have awareness of our biases. So for me, that's, I think we have the potential to solve a lot of the things like climate change, world hunger, all those things, and in business, like Schwab mentioned, but we need to fix these kind of soft skills, like critical thinking, active listening, mitigating bias. Uh, to me, that's the biggest part holding us away from doing that. But I do think it, I, I do think it's a good chance it makes the world a better place. And that is innovation um, until it doesn't, I guess. So uh, hopefully time will tell, but yes, there is concerns. I'm not concerned robots are gonna take over the world and blow things up. I am concerned that we get so we're already all overloaded, misinformed. If we don't have the right skills to handle them, again, technology is going exponentially. Our brains are not handling that. Then things get out of whack where we lose touch with reality. We lose touch with all of the technical innovations where it, it's hard to slow, slow things down. So I can definitely see negative sides of, of this, but I think if we train our brains properly, it's going to be a positive. The way I see things uh, evolving, uh, his um, advisor, Schwab's advisor, Yurval, I think he was called, he uh, said that the, the next um, evolution would be the merging with technology. So all of this lack of attention and everything that you just mentioned would be, I guess, solved with the chip in your brain. The question is, do we want to evolve into a semi human semi-technology species or do we not want to yeah uh, i guess it goes back to what i said before everyone has a different risk profile mm -hmm. um in the no category for that one because i don't know what i don't know yet so maybe more data and information will help me and realize the benefits but the first reaction to that is i do not want to become a cyborg no mm. <laughs> all right Kevin, I think that that was a lot of information <laughs> for today. <laughs> thank you so much. Anything yeah, else that, that you would like to share? 
No, I just appreciate everyone having, if, if you want to learn more about any of the stuff or the books or whatever, just go to my website, kevinhannigan.com. But other than that, I appreciate the time. I, hopefully the listeners found some value in it. And um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what were the titles of your books and uh, are they available only on your website or can people find yeah, them? Yeah, on Amazon, um, Turning Data into Wisdom talks about that process of that we, we frameworks for making the best decisions. And then I recently co-authored a book, Data Literacy and Practice with a good friend, Angelica, that is more of like understanding how data works and, and how you can get value from it. Mm-hmm. And, and they're both uh, on Amazon. Excuse me? And they're both on Amazon, if anyone's they're interested. Mm-hmm. And so your work currently um, revolves around uh, advising the company you work for on... The company I work for and customers on how to strategically use data within their business, make decisions, mm-hmm. and train the employees on the skills required for that, not just technical skills, but soft skills as well. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you, Kevin. It was very informative, very engaging, interesting, and uh, I appreciate an intelligent conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Grow and Learn. We hope that you found our podcast informative, engaging, and inspiring. Our mission is to help you keep growing and learning, and we hope that our conversations and insights have provided you with practical advice and useful perspectives. If you're looking for personalized support and guidance to help you achieve your personal or professional growth objectives, I offer a range of services to help. As a trusted management partner and mentor, I work with businesses in the process of transformation, looking for new streams of business, as well as M&A. With an extensive professional network of experts and mentors, I can bring on board the right person or team based on the specific needs of the company I'm working with. To learn more about the services I offer and how I can help you achieve your goals, visit my website at growandlearn.org. You can also reach out to me via email or social media. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode of Grow and Learn, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is important to us and it helps us to continue to create content that is relevant and valuable to our listeners. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to sharing more insights and perspectives with you in the future.